The reading this evening is from 1 Samuel 18, 7 to 16, and then 19, 8 to 24. And it's on page 290 in the Church Bibles. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him, and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success, because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he led them in their campaigns. And then chapter 19, 8 to 24. Once more, war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the lyre, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear. But David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, If you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michal let David down through a window and he fled and escaped. Then McCall took an idol and laid it on the bed, covering it with a garment and putting some goat's hair at the head. When Saul sent the men to capture David, McCall said, he is ill. Then Saul sent the men back to see David and told them, bring him up to me in his bed so that I may kill him. But when the men entered, there was the idol in the bed and the head with some goat's hair. Saul said to McCall, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? McCall told him, he said to me, let me get away, why should I kill you? When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah, so sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku, and he asked, Where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Thank you. Wow, interesting passage, isn't it? We're in a series uh, looking at the highlights of the life of David. And uh, I think this is my favorite kind of text to preach on. I love a good story. Um, two weeks ago, it seems a long time ago, Matthew uh, Klukas, our youth worker, was speaking, 
And he was speaking about David's relationship with Jonathan, the king's son. And Jonathan had reacted to David's defeat of Goliath in a very different way from his dad. So Jonathan saw that and he recognized David's going to be the future king. And he made a covenant with David. And Matthew looked at how amazing Jonathan was and this friendship that David had with Jonathan. But in chapters 18 and 19 of, of 1 Samuel, it's all about how King Saul spirals down and down and down and destructs himself spiritually. It's a terrifying tale, really. In chapter 15, the word of the Lord had come to the prophet Samuel, and he'd gone to Saul. Saul had been disobedient, and he said to Saul, you've been disobedient. You've disregarded God's word. Your, the kingship will be taken away from you. And Samuel, the prophet, went to Ramah. This was a school of the prophets there. And he, he, his job really was discipling the prophets, people who taught the word of God. And he never saw King Saul again. And there, God revealed to Samuel that David would be the future king. And it seems in the texts that Jonathan saw that and accepted it. And so he made this a covenant with David. But Saul was the exact opposite. From this point on, he clings to power so tenaciously, but he becomes less and less king-like as he does so. So Saul's destruction happens in three phases. It starts with envy, which we'll talk about mostly tonight, and then it descends to slavery and blasphemy. The, the, the envy doesn't really relate to that picture, but we'll come on to the picture in a minute. So first of all, envy. I was chatting this morning in the, after the service to someone who'd just come back from a lovely holiday to Bali, somebody who was about to go on ho holiday to Austria to swim in the lakes, someone else who's about to go to Croatia, and uh, that person asked me, oh, w w what are you up to in the next, uh, next little while? I said, I'm preaching on envy. <laughs> and you're giving me plenty of fuel for my talk. We see it mostly in, um, in verses uh, 7 to 9. So the young women, as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of, th with tens of thousands, but me... With only thousands, what more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Now, King Saul had made a good start. He had the ability to draw men to himself, to rally them, to give them a cause, to protect the nation with military victory. He was a tall, striking man with stature and dignity and clearly some charisma but underneath the broad shoulders of this tall, magnificent-looking leader lay a heart in which jealousy, envy, and fear festered like cancer. The women's song, it wasn't meant to provoke Saul. It was meant to celebrate how both Saul and David were heroes, albeit now David was perhaps the more swashbuckling of the two. But this refrain 
displeased him. Another version says it galled him, and he became eaten up with envy. Now, one thing I've seen from the cricket lately, not doing so well at the moment, but how good Joe Root and Ben Stokes are as leaders. When Joe Root was captain, he had a hero in his team, Ben Stokes, who played the most swashbuckling innings ever played by an Englishman in, on 22nd of August 2019 against Australia. But commentators said then that Joe Root loved and exulted in the success of his teammates. And so does Ben Stokes now. Actually, he loves to see other players thrive. And you can see the transformation in players like Johnny Bairstow and Jack Leach. Not every leader is able to do that. And King Saul didn't. King Saul considered David a rival from this point on, not a teammate. Most of Saul's followers were so enthralled by his ability to mobilize and communicate, they didn't notice his fanatic desire to have total control and to receive all the adulation for himself. Now this tells us something about the nature of envy. Envy says, him, but what about me? Saul has slain his thousands, David is tens of thousands. Him, but what about me? And the Apostle James, in the third chapter of his letter, speaks about envy in uh, verses 14 to 16. He says this, If you are bitterly jealous and there's selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying, for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. So envy is opposed to God's wisdom, and it's directly opposed to God's love. In the greatest love poem ever written, 1 Corinthians 13, love does not envy. I've seen loving people get very jealous at times, but love by its nature does not envy, and God never envies. Envy then is cancer to wisdom, and it destroys love, and it makes you extremely self-absorbed. Saul was saying to himself, they've, they've credited him, but they haven't credited me as much, and envy focuses on me. Love focuses on the other. Love empathizes. Love rejoices with those who rejoice, but envy weeps with the, uh, those who are rejoicing and rejoices when they weep. What's so terrible about envy is you look at everybody else and their conditions as related to you, and you can't be happy that they're happy. So the core of envy is self-pity. I deserve better than I've got, and they don't. Let's think about the seriousness of envy. We saw it in that text there with James. In the fourth century, a monk came up with a list of seven deadly sins that were adopted by the Roman Catholic Church. Seven deadly sins, lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, pride, envy. Don't worry about that list. It's, it's a Roman Catholic list, but envy is serious. How do you think that Satan got to be Satan. I was interested when James said that envy is demonic. How did Satan get to be Satan? He envied God. 
he still envies him and hates him. And so envy has undermined the universe. How much more can it wreck your heart and mine? So the first thing we need to do is kind of identify envy in our lives. I wonder when you find yourself getting envious. What makes you envious? Can I talk about the cure for envy before we get further into the story? It was envy that put Jesus on the cross, right? The religious leaders were envious of him. But there on the cross, he bore our punishment. He bore the punishment for our envious hearts in our place so that we can be forgiven and healed. And how we get healed is we take the spirit of the gospel, the good news, which is all about grace, and we let it eat away at envy. What does that mean? Well, the gospel is all about grace, and grace means we receive things we don't deserve. Jesus loves to give us things that we don't deserve. Forgiveness, community, healing, salvation, gifts, the Holy Spirit, a foretaste of the world to come. That's the heart of the gospel. So if we see people getting what we think mm, they don't deserve... We need to delight in grace as well. The only way to defeat envy is through grace, through an understanding and an appreciation at a heart level of grace, and then practicing thankfulness as a ritual in our lives every day, as a healing ritual. Because only grace, I think, can take healing away. So ask God to reveal his grace to you deep, deep, deep down. Let's move on. We've talked about envy. Let's talk about how it escalates in Saul's life and moves on to the next stage, which is slavery. The most important thing in Saul's life was what, do you think? Power. Holding on to power. The kingship. When Saul was a, a, a obeying God and was a, a, he was a decent human being, until, until God kind of took away the kingship, and then his need to have this kingship enslaved him. And so in the rest of 1 Samuel, we have a situation where Saul is officially the king, but practically he's a slave. He's a slave to this, this power. He's a slave to his own anger. And so in chapter 18... He starts to try to destroy David. Rather than skim lots of chapters, let's have a look into uh, chapter 18 at verse 17. Saul said to David, here's my elder daughter, Merab. I'll give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and, and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I'll not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. And so Saul then goes on to say, uh, if you want my daughter, I want you to go and get me a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. See, the Bible's not boring, is it? Uh, chapter 18, verses 22 to 26. You might think it's kind of creepy to, to scalp people, uh, but um, David was a poor man. He couldn't really afford the bride price for a king's daughter, and so... Saul says, if you want my daughter, uh, this is the price. 
Now, David actually comes back with 200 foreskins, and he plonks them on Saul's desk. And how does that make Saul feel? Even more envious, right? And the more David succeeds, the more he looks like a king, and the more he looks like a king, the more it makes Saul go mad, and the more he wants to kill him. And so in chapter 19, Saul sends some agents to seize David while he's in bed with Michal, who he eventually married. But David and his wife get wind of it, and they put a dummy in the bed stuffed with some goat's hair while David legs it out of the window. But David's so addi- uh, sorry, Saul is so addicted to power and so addicted to the kingship and so addicted to this preoccupation with David that when you get addicted like this, it makes you high and it controls you so that you have to have more and more of it. That is addiction, isn't it? The same kind of thing seems to have happened <clears throat> to Vladimir Putin, who has become a terrorist, every bit as bad as Osama bin Laden. It was, the, it was the historian Lord Acton who said, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is what has happened to King Saul. Jonathan had given up the kingship and had become more kingly. Saul clung to the kingship and he became less and less dignified and more and more like a slave and an addict. And even though he was king, he was slave to envy. He was permanently intoxicated by it. And so from now on, Saul is chasing David down and David's on the run. And so he flees, first of all, to Ramah, where he knows this school of the prophets is where Samuel is. And this leads to the third stage of the destruction of Saul, blasphemy. Envy, slavery, blasphemy. Because at the end of chapter 19, he's on the ground, naked, prophesying. Let's read that again. Uh, Chapter 19, verses 18 to 24. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. The word came to Saul, David is at Naoth in Ramah. So he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Finally, he himself left for Ramah, and went to the great cistern at Seku, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over there, in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of the Lord came even on him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth, and he stripped off his garments, and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence, and lay naked all day and all night. And that is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? Yeah, that's one of those times when you read the Old Testament, you're like, hmm, what the heck is going on here? (laughs) Samuel has set up this Bible school. And in this Bible school, the prophets, when the, the Spirit came on them, they spoke God's word. They spoke God's word and they taught God's word. What happens when Saul 
a man raging against the word of God comes into the environment. He himself starts prophesying. And God is showing everyone through this that heaven and earth might pass away, but his word will not. His word comes down and forces the king to receive it. And Saul is on the ground prophesying. And it's God's way of saying, there's no way to escape my will or my word. I am the true king. And it's a message for all of us. We, we either receive the word of God or it will crush us. And the message here is that Saul tries to go against the will of God and he can't. But in his heart, he still stays raging against God's word. And that is really the definition of a life of blasphemy. Raging against the word of God. Blasphemy is when you know something about God, you know something of what he wants, and you know that he requires a change in your life, but you know, but you don't know because you don't want to know because you don't want to change. Blasphemy. God is saying there is no refuge from the word of God. There's only refuge in it. Now, in conclusion, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel draw us to think about what is the kind of leadership we need? The people had asked for a king. But they'd asked for a king so that they could be like the other nations. But what we need as human beings is a leader, not like all the leaders in the nations, in the world, but a leader who's selfless, a leader who has the spirit of the Lord, a leader who's faithful, a leader who delights to see others flourish. And whereas Saul clung to power and envied the flourishing of others, Jesus had all the power of heaven and earth at his disposal. Christ is not his second name. It means anointed king. That is who he is. But he gave it up. He became a servant. In the words of Paul to the Philippians, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and as a result, now he's exalted to the highest place. And from that highest place, he loves to see you flourish. He was diminished in order that you flourish. He was cut off in order that you be brought in through faith. And he loves to bestow gifts on his people to enable you to thrive and thrive as a community and be the kind of human beings you were created to be. Saul was a king who idolized power, but Jesus the king kind of gave it up so that salvation would come to the world. Jesus was born into poverty and degradation, even though he had all the riches at his disposal, but he never envied. He only ever served and he only ever loved to the very end. And when we see this, and it goes from here to here, it is the antidote to envy. When we think about the grace that he's given us, we can use that to put out the fires of envy that we all struggle with.